morning. Scripture reading this morning is Revelation 2, 12 through 17. That's on page 1020 in the Pew Bible. If you use a Pew Bible, I'll let you have a second to turn to it. Revelation 2, 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone, which no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven this morning, we thank you so much that we can be here. and We praise you, Father, because you're worthy of praise, all of our praise, and worship, and adoration, and wonder, and reverence, and awe. You are very great and greatly to be praised. Thank you for this time that we've had to sing these hymns. And thank you for your goodness to us and your daily protection and provision. And for this day to set aside, Lord, to you. We pray now, Father, for Steve as he comes to speak, that you would speak through him with power and clarity the message that he's prepared, that you put on his heart and guided him in his preparation and that each of us keep our minds and hearts from distractions and being drawn away to the cares of this world and this life. Keep our hearts and minds fixed on you and we receive what you have for us this morning through your word and that it has accomplishes your purpose in us, in our minds and hearts and lives, what you desire. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. It's great to be here with you this morning. For those of you who don't know who I am, my name's Stephen Smith. Uh, I was the youth pastor here for about 10 years, and now I am an elder here at the church and, uh, and work outside of the church these days. Um, I am the, uh, the D team. So there's an A team, a B team, a C team, and a D team. I'm the D team of the, uh, the elder team here at Gray Road. So just know that, um, and as we go to the Word this morning, I just I want to um, encourage you in a couple things. First, our text this morning, and 
for those of you who, who teach and preach, you understand how when you delve into a text, right, for weeks on end, and it's God's drilling you and drilling you and drilling you and drilling you and, and teaching you and training you and encouraging you and all these things, right, that, that the Word does, and, and you're just soaking in it and soaking in it and soaking in it, and then you're, you come up here, right, and you're trying to just lay it all out in 30 or 40 minutes. It's, it's really impossible. It truly is. <laughs> um, but my encouragement to you is, th- this is a, t- a tough text this morning. Okay? Uh, this is not light stuff. And it is not easy stuff to think through and consider. And I, I want to caution against something. I've struggled very much with, Lord, how do you, um, how do I speak of the issues of our day and the the issues of our time in relationship to this text? And to be frank with you, I'm standing here right now, not sure. So please be patient with me and gracious with me. Let's seek to hear from God this morning. And I want to encourage all of us to be open to perhaps some admonition from Scripture today. And uh, I pray that God would be glorified. Let me pray real quick. Lord, we come to You. I ask that You would uh, remove me from this equation that you would remove any fear of man from my heart. Lord, that you would remove any obstacles in any of us to the truths of your word, that we would be teachable, that we would be correctable, that we would be trainable, moldable. Would help us all to humbly come before your word this morning, seeking to be taught, and seeking to be changed for your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name, amen. So since the beginning of the people of God, since the beginning of the existence of the people of God, the overwhelming temptation for God's people has been compromised. From the very beginning, and to this day, the overwhelming temptation, the common temptation that runs from the beginning to the end for the people of God is compromise. Compromise is a common temptation, a thread that runs through the people of God and the history of the people of God from the beginning to the end. Can we agree on that? The fact is, is when God established the nation of Israel, and so I'm going to ask you to turn with me quickly to Leviticus chapter 18. To Leviticus chapter 18. God knew that this was the case with the people of God. Our Lord knew that uh, 
the most common temptation that the average person within his community of people would experience was the temptation to compromise in the society in which they live. When you think about who the Israelites were when the book of Leviticus was dictated by our Lord, the Israelites were a group of people who had just spent 430 years in slavery in Egypt. And in Egypt existed all form and manner of wicked paganism, right? Wicked worship, idol worship, uh, sexual immorality, child sacrifice, the, the whole gamut of things. And the Israelites had spent 430 years there. And without question, without question, you live in a culture, in a society, for that period of time, the, the mores of that culture and that society rub off on you, right? So look at what God says to the Israelites as He's giving them His law in Leviticus chapter 18. The Lord spoke to Moses, this is verse 1, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. And then if you go on to read uh, chapter 18 of Leviticus, Moses gives an onslaught of commands about sexual purity. Things that the Israelites should not do. And everything that he commands them not to do in Leviticus chapter 18 are things that the Egyptians are doing and things that the Canaanites are doing. It's happening all around them all the time. Things like covering the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. Things like verse 21, offering your children to Molech. These are things that are happening. And the issue is, and, and here's the important part, and this is something I want us to take home with us today, the issue is, is not just their obedience, right? The issue is God. The issue is, look at what God says in, in verse 21 after He says, you shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. The issue is the profaning of God's name. See, the compromising of God's people leads to the profaning of God's name. This is the exact opposite of what's supposed to happen. 
You see, the worship and the allegiance and the love and the worship of God's people is supposed to lead to the glory of God's name, right? To point the world, to point society, to point the culture to the glory of God's name. And when the church compromises, when the people of God compromises, the opposite happens. God's name is profane. And so as we discuss what we're discussing this morning, please keep that in mind. We're not talking about rigid self-righteousness and rigid obedience and rigid rule-keeping. That's not what we're talking about this morning. What we are talking about this morning is the glory of our God. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 2, where we see a church, the church of Pergamum, that is compromising. And the big idea this morning is that the compromising church must repent or face the judgment of the King Jesus. The compromising church must repent or face the judgment of the King Jesus. And this is the negative side of a positive statement, by the way. And the reason I believe that we have to emphasize the negative side of a positive statement this morning is because of how Jesus introduces himself in verse 12. Clearly what Jesus is is communicating, right? Clearly what Jesus is trying to demonstrate is that he is the sovereign king and judge of the world. And that is the emphasis of this passage. Because Jesus introduces himself by saying, this is the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword in his mouth. You know, the positive statement would be something like this. And this was almost the key idea of today. The church that faithfully perseveres in a hostile culture will be rewarded. Right? That's the other side of the statement. The church, the Christian that faithfully perseveres in a hostile culture will be rewarded. But again, I think the emphasis of this text is warning. Is warning. Jesus says this is the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, and we know that this sharp two-edged sword is used by Christ Himself. It's from His mouth. Revelation 19, verse 15, from His mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword with which to strike down the nation. With which to strike down the nations, and He will rule them with a rod of iron. It is important as we come to this text that that we are not coming to a text of suggestion, right? We are not coming to a text with where we are hearing from an equal. No, we're coming to a text where we are hearing from the King of kings and Lord of lords of heaven and earth. And Jesus makes that clear to His church. 
And, I mean, doesn't that introduction just kind of give this letter to Pergamum a certain tone, right? It gives it a certain tone. And it's a somber tone. It's, it's a cautious tone. The angel of the church in Pergamum, Rice. So before we dig in and, and, and think about what the church needs to, to learn from this text, I want to take a few moments and talk about the community of, of Pergamum. Earliest archaeological evidence of this city, of the city of Pergamum, is found in 5th century B.C., 500 years before Christ. Pergamum declares their independence from Lysimachus, who was ruling in Syria and in kind of in the whole Grecian Empire after the fall of Alexander the Great. In 190 B.C., Antiochus of Syria is advancing west from Syria across Asia, and it forces Rome to intervene along with the kingdom of Pergamum, and they stop them. They stop the Syrians. So from 190 B.C. to 133 B.C. is really the height of Pergamum's power, but much like Smyrna in 133 B.C., the leaders at Pergamum are kind of reading the, the writing on the wall, that the Roman Empire is gaining, is gaining power, Right? The Roman Empire is getting bigger. The, the, the Roman Empire is getting more influential, more powerful. And reading the writing on the wall, they decide to ally themselves, to bequeath themselves to the Roman Empire. Shrewd policy decision, right? The Romans are happy with this decision, and they make Pergamum the seat of sovereign power in Asia Minor for the Roman Empire. So in all of Asia Minor, Pergamum is the seat of Roman authority and power in that region. Um, and they hold this position really for about 250 years. As a result, the city of Pergamum, which is approximately 150 to 200,000 people, was full of some of the wealthiest, most influential, most powerful men in all of the Roman Empire. And they made sure people understood that they were the wealthiest, most influential, and powerful men in all of the Roman Empire. So that's the city, right? That's the city that this letter is written to. This, this is the city that these, this small band of believers is living in. Now to think about the worship of the city of Pergamum. There were several temples in Pergamum. The first temple was the temple of Dionysus, the god of the great harvest and, and fertility. Worship here consisted of offering sacrifices and eating and drinking in excess, drunkenness, and great sexual immorality. The temple of Dionysus was the radical version of today's rave. Right? And it was commonplace in the culture. It was, it was the preeminent condition of the culture. This, this is what the average person in this culture participated in. 
This was the cultural norm. Dionysus. Another temple that existed in Pergamum was the temple of Aclepios, the god of healing. Some of you may have seen pictures and statues of Asclepios. You can see, you can go home and look it up online right now. You see a, a big, strong man with a staff, with a, a serpent wrapped around his staff. The temple, the temple of Asclepios, was the god of medicine, the god of health, and the way they worshipped the god of medicine, the god of health, was to enter into a temple that was teeming with serpents. And they would lay on the ground and allow serpents to slither all over their bodies as they offered sacrifices to the idol that stood at the front of the room. Asclepios. Again, a cultural norm. Then the other altar that existed in Pergamum was the altar to Zeus, a massive structure on the Acropolis of the city where men, women, and children went continuously to offer their sacrifices to the God of gods, to Zeus. And finally, the last kind of idolatrous worship that existed in Pergamum was the imperial cult. The imperial cult, the most hostile of all the cults of all the religions, uh, involved the worship of the emperor. Right? The worship of the emperor was commonplace in Rome as the Roman citizens deified their emperors. Statues were erected of emperors, the emperor Caesar, the emperor Trajan. Uh, later, the, the emperor Domitian had statues in Pergamum. Many powerful men demanded themselves to be venerated at these temples, these imperial temples. And in this society, this was something that everyone did. In this society, they even performed what they called loyalty tests, where every citizen of the city was taken before the idols of the emperors and demanded, commanded to offer incense at the feet of these statues. This was required. And honestly, refusal to do so had, had unbelievable consequences. So we're, this, this is the city. The worship of Dionysius, the worship of Zeus, the, the worship of Asclepius, the, the worship of the imperial cult. This is something every person in this city is doing. This was the norm. Religion was at the center. These religions were at the center of the culture. And you either participated in the culture or you didn't. You were either part of the culture or you weren't. You were either in or you were out. You were either a part of the group, you were either a part of the elite, you were either a part of the accepted class, or you weren't. Those were the two options. Now you can imagine being a Christian here. It's really hard to overstate what it must have been like to, 
to, to live in this culture, in this time, under this pressure, and remain faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. One pastor likens it to being a church in the middle of an ISIS camp. Being a church in the middle of an ISIS camp. So it makes it no wonder that Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And Jesus has a word of commendation for these Christians when he says, Yet, though you dwell in this culture, you have held fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Church history tells us that Antipas was taken before uh, the imperial, required to offer incense of worship to the idols in that day, and refused to do so. And because of his position in society and because of his influence in the culture, the, the refusal to offer incense to venerate this statue led to a mob. And church history tells us that Antipas was put into a brazen bowl and cooked alive. And Jesus says, You held fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. And he commends them for that. He commends them for that. But now he deals with the compromise, and that's what I want to look at for a few minutes this morning. Verse 14. I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So there were some in this church, guys, there were some in this church that were holding to the teaching of Balaam. And Balaam was the prophet that told Balak that he could not curse the people of Israel, but what he could do instead was give them a, a tool. Give Balak a tool where he could destroy Israel from the inside out. And that tool was to tempt them, was to entice them with pagan women. Was to lure them with sexual immorality. And in this church... This is kind of boggling to the mind. You have a church where people have willingly held fast to the name of Jesus Christ, even while they watch their leader get burned in a brazen bowl, yet there are some among them who are holding to the teaching of Balaam. And as a result of holding to the teaching of Balaam, 
They are eating food that is sacrificed to idols in the guild feast and participating in gross sexual immorality. It's the same thing with the Nicolaitans. So also some of you hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The teaching of the Nicolaitans was that you abuse the body. It was almost a Gnostic view. Right? The church understood the Gnostic Gnostic view of Jesus was that Jesus, yeah, He was God, but because He was God, He did not take on a human flesh. They had a dualistic view of creation. One view says that the, the body is evil and, and everything physical in the physical world is evil and irrelevant per se to our spiritual reality and everything in the spiritual realm is good. And as a result, we can abuse these bodies. We can actually do whatever we want with these bodies because these bodies don't matter. And because of their Gnostic view of truth and of the flesh, and being driven by compromise. They took on the cultural norms of Pergamum. The question for the Nicolaitans was how can we be Christian and at the same time be at peace with the society we live in? Guys, there were some in the church who held to the teachings of Balaam. And there were some in the church who were holding to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And because of their compromise in doctrine, they compromised in life. It's almost impossible to fathom how a believer, how someone who professes to be a follower of Christ, could participate in a guild feast. But they did. How could someone who professes to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ participate in temple prostitution? But they did. How could someone who who claims to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ venerate the statues of emperors and worship at their feet in their culture? But they did. They were driven by compromise. Guys, professing Christian in a tiny band of believers in the city of Pergamum, hear me, professing Christians were eating food sacrificed to idols, were lying with prostitutes, were laying in the temple floors of Aklepias with serpents, and were venerating the statues of emperors. They were steeped, they were steeped in the pagan culture of their day. And here's another kind of sobering reality here. The faithful Christians 
the Christians in the church that were not participating in this, apparently, as you read the text, were tolerating it. It was being tolerated. Ladies and gentlemen, what would cause the church of Jesus Christ, what would cause Christians who have come to believe that Jesus Christ is in fact Lord, who have been saved by His grace, who have tasted the heavenly gift, what would cause individuals like this to cave in such crucial areas of morality? I've got some ideas. Here's one, lack of understanding, doctrinal immaturity. That's one. Fear of man. The reality is the greater your status in the society, the greater the fear of man becomes, right? You can imagine for someone who was higher up in the echelon of society in Pergamum, all of their associations and all of their relationships, all of their networking was involved in all of this pagan activity, right? And for you to just dismiss all of those things and to forsake all of those things would come at tremendous personal cost to you, right? Avoiding conflict. Personal security and comfort, not wanting to make yourself a target in society, right? Blend in. Get along to get along. Laziness. Greed. Like I said, the wealthier that you were, the, the more difficult and more costly the sacrifice of following Christ became. Church, what about us? So I thought about this examination of my own life, examination of the church in the United States of America, right? Where are we compromising? Where are we compromising? I've got a couple here that I just want to throw out there for us to consider. I want you to meditate on them, think on them personally in your own life, us as a congregation. First is a very subtle, very subtle in your um, Bible-believing, Christ-following church, acceptance of health and wealth teaching. It goes something like this. We have subtly bought into the lie that if we are under God's blessing, we will have financial gain. Is this the truth? Is this the truth? Look, I'm a businessman now, right? I run a real estate company, and so I run in circles with business people. And a lot of business people profess Christ as Lord, 
But I tell you, a common thread, a common theme that runs through discussions that I have with Christian business people is something along these lines. God's got to be in this or it's not going to work. See how subtle that is? If, if God's in this, we will have success. Guys, that's a, that is a lie. The, the reality is God, will, God is very much in it when it's not successful, right? Maybe God needs you to experience failure. Right? Maybe God's more concerned with our character and our Christ-likeness than He is about the size of our, our checking account and our savings account. And I find myself having this conversation over and over again. Listen, God is good and God is faithful regardless of whether you make money or lose money on this project. That is idolatry. It's a lie. And it's a compromise. The gospel actually has very little to do with the accumulation of riches and everything to do with setting us free from them. You hear what I just said? The gospel has very little to do with the accumulation of riches and possessions. It actually has everything to do with setting human beings free from them. There's a compromise. The church has taken on the, cultural, the culture's financial ethos. Am I speaking truth there? Another one, the consumption of sexual immorality. Guys, we don't have to go to the temple of Dionysus anymore. We don't have to go to the temple of Asclepius anymore. We just have to go to the altar of Netflix. Church, Hear what I'm saying. Do we really believe that we are not committing sexual immorality when we're not doing the acts ourselves but watching other people do it? Compromise. Human idolization. This, this, I'm going to be honest. This is a pet peeve for me. Christian, we, we can enjoy watching sports, right? We can enjoy music. We, we can enjoy these things. That, uh, talking with a friend of mine the other day that you know, one of the beauties of God's creation is being able to, to watch People that have been given gifts by God do incredible things with the gift that they've been given. But what that should drive us to 
is worship of God. Not worship of some basketball player or some guitar player or some drummer somewhere. These people are nothing. Right? I was reading uh, Chuck Colson in, wrote a book called Kingdoms and Conflict. Highly recommend the book, by the way. Kingdoms and Conflict. Chuck Colson was the hatchet man for uh, President Nixon. Everybody heard of Chuck Colson, started prison fellowship ministries, right? Well, when he, before he became a Christian, he was a hatchet man for Nixon, and he was involved in the Watergate scandal. And he had actually uh, managed to get through Watergate unscathed. And the whole thing had kind of passed, and he was good, he was golden. And then Robert Kraft, the CEO of Kraft uh, Cheese, right? Shares the gospel with him, and he becomes a Christian. He's convicted of his sin and becomes a Christian. He starts reading the Word of God, starts reading the Scripture, and he starts to understand that the only reason he's not in prison right now is because of lies. Lies that he's told and lies that other people have told. And out of allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, he went back to the judicial system, confessed what he did and his part in the Watergate scandal, and went to prison. But Colson talks about the illusion of power and the, the aura around it. He was in the Oval Office every day. the most prestigious office in the country. And here he is, 20 years later, writing as a Christian who's been gripped by the greatness of God, looking back at things that he saw 20 years ago. And one of the things that he mentioned that is stunning to him at the time that he's writing the book was that he watched pastor after pastor after pastor walk into the Oval Office and be allured by the power and the prestige that was there in cave. It's our culture, right? To lift people up. You know? And I talk with my kids, talk with the youth group, listen. Some of these athletes, they're incredible athletes. They are. They do amazing things. But many of them, many of them are horrible human beings in need of a Savior, not someone to be admired. Right? Another compromise. It's the imago Deo of human being, the image of God. Many of you know that God has been kind of leading me on a journey in, into the realm of dealing with the abolition of abortion. And as part of that journey, part of that journey has been having many discussions with my brothers and sisters 
in Christ about the issue of abortion and the issues surrounding abortion. And I want to encourage you on a couple things. First of all, one place where I believe the church has compromised is in the vernacular around the issue of abortion. I was just sitting at a lunch table with a couple of my closest friends just a couple weeks ago. And we were discussing the issue of abortion. And the, the word murder came up. The word murder came up. And my friends were kind of pushing back on me about using the word murder as a description of the process of abortion. My question to them was, what does God call it? Is it the destruction of the Imagio Deo? We have unwittingly accepted the vernacular of our culture that is dehumanizing the human being inside the womb and calling them a fetus. And instead of calling it murder of a human, we're calling it the abortion of a fetus. Do we believe what the Word of God says about the imagio Deo of human beings outside of the womb and human beings inside of the womb? Church, do we believe what the Word of God says about the imagio Deo of human beings inside the womb and outside of the womb? then what else do we call it? The church has unwittingly, and I'm talking about the church as a whole, has unwittingly taken on the ethos of our culture in regards to the preborn human being. Ladies and gentlemen, if I told you right now that at 10 o'clock in the morning on Thursday, Ten kindergartners are going to be marched into 1201 North Arlington and dismembered. What would be our response? I've had brothers and sisters in Christ we stood out in front of an abortion clinic a couple times with signs and pictures. They're horrible. They're gruesome. I've had brothers and sisters in Christ say, that's, that's offensive. Why would you do something like that? And here's my response. You think this is offensive? This is what's actually happening inside those walls right now. You know, there might be someone in here this morning. That has had an abortion. And I want you to know something. Many, many ladies have an abortion in secret 
And they carry that around with them for the rest of their life. If you've had an abortion and you're in this room this morning, and you are carrying that darkness with you, and you're hearing what I'm saying, that that is murder, I want you to know something else. It's murder. But the cross covers murder too. The Scripture teaches us that where sin increases, grace increases all the more. Our God is a God of redemption. And here's the reality. If you've done something like that, if you have had an abortion and you have murdered the child that was in your womb, you've got to call it that. The Scripture says that if we confess our sin, that our God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But you have to name it. It wasn't a mistake, right? And that's the reality, church, is that once we start dealing with these things biblically, there is a solution. There is hope. The most compassionate thing the church can do with these ladies that have done these things is to help them see what they have done and point them to the Savior that they desperately need, just like the rest of us. You know, why do we do what we do, church? Why do we do what we do? Do we do the things that we do? Do we live the way that we live? Do we love the things that we love? Because it's the things that our culture does, that it's the things that our culture lives for, it's the things that our culture loves. See, holiness has a whole lot less to do with what we're doing than why we're doing it. See, what happens in the compromised church, what happens in the compromised church is that the glory of God goes by the wayside and the goals of men become primary, preeminent. Because the reality is, is if, if we as a church are, are focused on anything other than honoring God, other than living to His glory, compromise is inevitable in every facet of life. Yeah. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And here's what Jesus says to the church. Therefore, repent. 
Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. The one who is supposed to be the Savior will be the warrior. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then Jesus says this, To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. To those who conquer, to those who refuse to cave in relentless pressure of the culture, our Savior promises to give some of the hidden manna, the manna from heaven, which leads to eternal life. And He says, I will give Him a white stone, which refers to what was given to the victors in Olympic events. They were given white stone with their names engraved on them, which gave them access. It was an invitation to the victor's banquet. Church, Compromise is killing the church. The compromise of God's people profaned the name of God. And it also harms the sons of men. Part of our job as the church of Jesus Christ is to be salt on the earth and light in the world. Guys, we are the alternative to the hopelessness of our culture. To the vanity and emptiness of our culture. And if the church succumbs to the culture, what hope is left for the culture? Let's resolve to be holy. Let us resolve as believers to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. Let us remember that we have been redeemed. We have been, brought, we have been bought with the precious blood of Christ. We are no longer our own. We have the privilege of belonging to the one true God. We are sons and daughters of the Most High. Jesus Christ, the King of kings, is our elder brother. We do not belong to this world. This world and its systems and its philosophies and its gods will pass away. But our God remains forever.
The compromising church must repent or face the judgment of the king. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning. in need of your grace. In need of your Spirit's power to strengthen the illumination of of our light in this world. To give us our saltiness once again. Father, I pray for our brothers and sisters in this room this morning that are suffering for the cause of Christ, that are dying to themselves for the cause of Christ, that they would know it is worth it. That they would be encouraged, that they would know that their King, their Savior, their Redeemer, their older brother sees their hardships and their difficulties and blesses them for it. I pray, God, that as a church that You would help us, that You would give us humility to examine ourselves corporately and to examine ourselves individually. That You would give us clarity of vision to see where we are succumbing to our culture and where we need to repent in our own lives. And Lord, we pray these things because it is our desire that amongst us, that amongst this group of believers, You would be exalted. That You would be seen for who You really are. That Your Gospel would be understood for what it really is and that Christ would be honored and glorified in our midst, and that it would offer hope, the one true hope, in this desperate humanity in which we live. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.